Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Moving to West Virginia has given me a real-world illustration of the term slippery slope. Everything is a hill around here. Everything is built on a hill. You have to take a hill to get to everything. If you're walking for for some reason, you will literally walk uphill both ways. An older friend and lifelong West Virginianer who lives at the top of a very steep hill tells a story of a winter a few years back where she lost her footing at her house and just rode her backside all the way down the hill because there was no way for her to stop. The slippery slope argument is just that. Once you start to slide down the hill, you're going to go all the way down. Unfortunately, that term also implies what's awaiting us at the bottom of the hill. Today, we're going to ride the hill of politicized science nearly the entire way down. Yes, no longer is all science science. Now, some specific types of science is politics, generally identified with the phrase, the science is settled. So today, we'll start at the top of the hill discussing one of the best methods for generating 1.21 gigawatts. Then we'll change an insult to a scientific term of endearment. And finally, as we near the bottom, we'll assess worth and value using the new and improved poly-scientific method. So set your flux capacitor a-fluxin', get your head out of your butt, but keep your butt in your head, and change into your toga and put that little laurel wreath thing on your butthead, because it's your turn to thumb up or thumb down entire demographics of humanity. Now push off, keep your hands up, and shout, Wee! Because here we go. Once upon a time, there was a dark, foreboding planet deep in outer space. Quiet ruled the planet. There was no movement on the barren, rocky soil. The dark waters slowly churned and swirled around the rocky banks. The sky was dark. The sun, at its apex, was barely discernible through the thick, gaseous atmosphere. Suddenly, a sound, a a quick crackling sound, could be heard in the distance, The sound built in intensity. Finally, a streak of light could be seen in what can only be described as clouds, but not like any clouds that have ever been seen. The streak of light grew in length and breadth when suddenly the electricity lurched from the heavens to the ground, but but not directly to the ground, to the edge of the waters. The impact of the mass of electrical charge scattered rock and water everywhere as the echo of the explosion rolled across the hills, dying as it went. And finally, the sound of silence once again. A massive charred crater on the water's edge, the only evidence that anything unusual had just occurred. Just then, the water water started to swirl and boil. Out of, out of the water, something new, a, a creature rising into an upright orientation, breathing in the noxious atmosphere in its new lungs, its new eyes adjusting to the dim lighting. A wet, pink, new tongue licked new lips, somehow dry, even though it had just emerged from the water. Drawing in a breath, it cried out, I am the wisest man alive! Now, most of you, although most assuredly riveted, are thinking, what is going on here? Well, what if I put hundreds of millions or billions of years in the story? Would that help? Would you buy it then? See, this is literally the evolutionary story of man and animals and vegetation. Well, pretty much everything, actually. It sounds like a poorly produced 1950s sci-fi movie when you speed it up. But if you slow it down and add in a whole bunch of time, 
That's what science is expecting you and I to accept as truth. The problem is none of the pieces fit together. These so-called scientists can sort of prove a theory correct or maybe at least plausible if they draw their boundaries tight enough. But when you start to put their piece of the puzzle into the bigger picture, it just simply can't fit. So they get the scissors out and snip and clip the theory, but although they can get the piece to fit slightly better, now they've screwed up the next piece. That'll need to be modified too. And honestly, this is what science should be. Create a hypothesis, do everything you can to disprove your theory, and when you do, tweak or change your theory. Continue doing this until you can't disprove your theory. At that point, you can declare that within a set of confidence intervals, you think you've found the answer. Problem is, that's not how science works anymore. Found on sciencealert.com headline, Primordial Earth had a major difference in its skies we didn't realize until now. <laughs> well, I wonder if they found some writings, maybe pictures, memes from back then? Hmm? Clearly, they have a reason that led to the realization, right? I mean, <laughs> right? Now, the gist of this article is honestly, it's honestly pretty stupid. I mean, this is nothing more than a scientist with grant money running out, and so he had to think of something really quick. So what did he think up? You know, basically, uh, uh, you know how lightning created life in an atmosphere of primarily methane and ammonia? Uh, we think lightning created life in an atmosphere of carbon dioxide and nitrogen. So we'll need money to, you know, to flesh that out. No pun intended. In fact, they didn't even come up with a theory of the carbon dioxide and nitrogen atmosphere. That was theorized in the 90s by James Casting, a, a geoscientist. So, you know, these guys just came up with a theory that lightning didn't strike um, as much. Now, the article says that, quote, this could make a difference to any of the hypotheses that suggest lightning may have been involved in sparking the earliest life on our planet. If lightning strikes were actually less common on the early Earth than previously thought, that affects those calculations. I mean, um, why? I mean, wasn't the previous theory that uh, random lucky lightning strike or random strikes created life, and, and now it's that a random lucky lightning strike or strikes uh, created life? I mean, the only calculation that would change is the possibility of it happening. The probability went from one out of impossible to um, one out of impossible squared or something like that. If all it took was a single lightning strike or a few strikes, well, those strikes could have happened at the same exact millisecond as the other one, you know, just coming from a smaller population of total lightning strikes. Well, the article goes on to talk about how electrical charges build in that kind of an atmosphere, and then they jump to the first experiment that proved life came from lightning striking water, creating a living slime on the rocks out of non-life, simply by putting a charge through, through nothing. They cite the 1952 Miller-Urey experiment. This was a bogus garbage experiment done by Stanley Miller and Harold Urey trying to prove that life came from non-life. Now, I'd explain this, but a, a number of years ago, a creationist named Kent Hovind had a presentation he gave many, many times where he summed up the impossibility of the Miller-Urey experiment actually proving uh, anything at all. So I'll let him explain. So a question, have scientists really produced life in the laboratory? Here's the experiment they did. Miller and Urey took gases, they took methane, ammonia, water vapor, and hydrogen, circulated them through some glass tubes, and ran a spark in there, to say this is like lightning. At the bottom, some red goo developed, 
And so they filtered it off and saved all the red goo at the bottom of the flask. They said the goo is rich in amino acids. This is a lie, okay? It was not rich in amino acids. It's interesting to notice they excluded oxygen from the experiment. They didn't want any oxygen in there because they knew if they had oxygen, anything they created would oxidize. You know, you cut the banana open, lay it on the table, it turns brown, it oxidizes. If you don't paint your car, it oxidizes. It's called rust. They didn't want any oxygen there because it would destroy any life that evolved. The problem is, if you don't have oxygen, you can't have ozone. And ozone blocks UV light, and UV light destroys ammonia. And ammonia is one of the gases. So if you don't have oxygen, life can't evolve. And if you do have oxygen, life can't evolve. <laughs> Got a real serious problem here. And by the way, the Earth has always had oxygen. Even if you believe the dumb geologic column, the lowest layers have oxygen. What Miller did in his experiment, and Yuri, and everybody since, they filter out the product they produce. This is not realistic for nature. What they actually made was 85% tar, 13% carboxylic acid. Both of those are toxic to life. Now, if you make an experiment that's 98% poisonous to the other 2% you're trying to make, would you say that's a success? Actually, what he generally made was two amino acids. There are 20 necessary for life. He made basically two in a poisonous mixture. He filtered out the product. That's not realistic. What the, he made this amino acids, but they will bond with the water and the tar and the acid much quicker than they will bond with each other. Amino acids are sort of like letters of the alphabet. You know, there are 26 letters in the English alphabet. With combining those 26, you can make all kinds of words if you get them in the right order. You can also just drop letters and make a whole bunch of nonsense stuff too, you know. He made a few amino acids. It's like making a few letters of the alphabet. There are 20 amino acids required to make proteins. He just made a few of them. These amino acids are like letters. It takes a bunch of them to make paragraphs. It takes a whole bunch of them to make a book. And to make one living cell takes trillions of these amino acids in precise order. Half of what he made was right-handed, half were left-handed amino acids. This creates a real problem because the smallest proteins have about 70 to 100. Maybe there's one less, I don't know. Uh, but all are left-handed. The smallest DNA all have, and DNA and RNA all have right-handed. It's called the chirality. He made a mixture. It's not going to work. They will unbond in water much faster than they bond. And as far as anybody knows, the oceans are completely full of water. <laughs> and Brownian motion is going to drive them apart, not bring them together. The experiment was a fraud. It's a lie. It's a fake. It didn't, didn't work. Don't let them tell you they made life in the laboratory because they never came close. Okay, now, I know that was a lot. Keep that information in mind and let's return to our article. They imply that you need multiple lightning strikes to keep creating what's needed for life to uh, spontaneously begin. Quote, what all of this means is that the process of producing and building up the prebiotic molecules key to life via lightning strikes would have taken longer if recent ideas about the atmosphere of the early Earth are right. The researchers don't specifically quantify how much longer. Okay, this makes it sound like these molecules were created via lightning, you know, the keys to life, I guess out of nothing, and then they were collected to the side, maybe put in some Tupperware to keep them fresh, and then more lightning, and then those were collected, and finally, they were all swirled and combined together, bada-bing, bada-boom, life! But if what Hoven said is true, these molecules, the amino acids, would have been destroyed as fast as they would have been created, either through oxidation, through poisons, and or swirling waters. 
it, it almost seems um, somewhat implausible. The author of the article states, quote, there's a lot more work to be done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I'd agree. This seems ridiculous. One of the study authors, Christopher Cohn, a physicist, said, quote, if lightning discharges were responsible for the production of prebiotic molecules, it's important to get a very good theoretical understanding of what happened. The big question is still, where do all these prebiotic molecules come from? Yeah, that kind of is the question. I, I would agree. Note that he said if lightning discharges were responsible, but I don't think he means that there's a potentially different cause. I, I think that's more of a since lightning discharges were responsible. I mean, it's already implied that this is how it had to be, and yet he doesn't know where these things came from or how they combined, how they created life. I thought he was going to solve that brain teaser for us, but, uh, but no. See, the problem is they can't actually say what they believe. Water, rocks, minerals, metals, salts, and who knows what else, but nothing that has anything even remotely close to do with being alive got zapped and came to life. It amazes me when I read these articles how very sure they are of what they're saying, how there's not a question, not a doubt in their mind what happened four billion years ago, but at the same time, they have no answers. They know it was four billion years ago. They know there was no oxygen. They know it was lightning. They know that's how life began, but they don't know where anything came from, and they don't know how anything came together. They can't reproduce anything that's remotely close to the start of life, and even if they did, they've only proven that it took an intelligent being to set up the perfect situation and scenario to create life. And yet, they call the science, and they call biblical creation a fairy tale. Now, I'll admit, you must have a fairly large amount of faith to believe in a magical sky god that's out there controlling everything from some unknown location who nobody has ever seen, who allegedly created everything 6,000 years ago out of nothing, flooded the entire planet 4,500 years ago, put everything we'd need to produce, everything we've got, on a large barge. But what's harder to believe? When you look around at the order, the design, the complexity, the governing laws, the absolute improbability of a planet circling a star at the right distance that's the right size spinning at the right rate with the right atmosphere to protect anything and everything from the huge star with the right gaseous content of the air, with creatures of all shapes and sizes, vegetation that some of you guys eat, creatures that the rest of us eat, the right minerals, the right ores, the right stuff to use to create fire and heat and electricity, basically the right and perfect everything. What's harder to believe, a creation by an intelligent being or random lightning strikes with admittedly impossible combinations of primordial soups? A slow progression where we add things, remove things, change things based on need, although for the most part, how would we know what we need? Take the eye. How would we ever know that we needed an eye? Assuming we had some intelligence and assuming we had some control over evolution, which some scientists imply by their description of evolution, what would ever make us think we needed to see something? We'd have no idea what that even meant. It's like, it's like Adam and Eve being told they would die if they ate the fruit. They had no idea what that really meant. But the story is that we developed a light-sensitive cell. Why? no idea. And then it took off after that. Little changes, little gains of information until we have a device that can see in color, focus in a flash on a wide range of distances built the way it's built to protect it from a variety of things, including UV light. Not to mention all the connections to the brain, the processing to interpret images. There's no way we could evolve that. But the solution is to just add enough time. When that light-sensitive cell developed, how long before the connections to the brain to perceive light evolved? 
How long before the consciousness to realize the difference between light and dark? Now, you may need to have faith to believe in God, but the amount of faith to say evolution stands a chance of being true goes well beyond any faith that I could think of. This is delusional. Faith, at least, has a cause. For every effect, we have a cause. And yes, that cause may sometimes be just that God did it that way. With evolution, they have no cause. They only have effects. They have no proof. They have bones that don't tell anyone anything about if they came from or produced something different than them. They're just bones. They have no cause for a Big Bang. They only have an effect of what appears to be planets and stars moving away from each other. Evolution can only kick the can down the road and then pass it off to the next guy to continue kicking, never reaching a concrete answer, only speculation. It's funny, but it's sad. And when you see how many people, including people professing to be Christians, who are trying to shoehorn the theory of death, mutations, pain, suffering into the perfect, beautiful creation story, it's just sad to see so many people scrambling to put the supremacy of man over the sovereignty and omnipotence of God. And that's exactly what evolution is. It's, it's man's attempt to be God. Yeah, I think I'll continue to look foolish to the world and believe what the Bible tells me. As an engineer, as a logician to whatever degree, discounting everything else, simply looking at the probability of the two views of creation based on the claims, the biblical account is the only one, in my opinion, of even having a chance of being true. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. We all remember that old rhyme, right? It was supposed to make you feel better when people picked on you for being short or bald or fat or when is it going to stop? <laughs> Sorry, I'm, <clears throat> I'm, I'm fine. The reality is, it's a stupid rhyme that doesn't really help anyone, but every parent busts it out as sage wisdom and every child will grow up to be that parent also. And the cycle will continue, probably, until God comes back. That said, maybe there is a little hope for at least one insult. If some little bully calls your angel a butthead, your little butthead can now simply smile and say, I know, thank you. From ScienceAlert.com, headline, The evolution of a head has been traced back, surprisingly far back, our ancestral line. Oh, haven't you always wondered, where did my head come from? Well, now we absolutely know. It probably. So here's what I'm going to do with this article. I'm going to forego the bulk of the biblical argument against evolution, as I've covered that before. You can go back and check out some of the past episodes to, to hear some of that. What I wanted to cover was the absolute authority this article is written with, while writing nothing concrete at all. It's a fantastically done piece, I'll be honest. So the gist of the article is that per evolutionary theory, we all came from spineless, brainless, multicellular organisms. Now, I could insert a political joke in here. I won't, but wow, could I? Anywho, in that form, we had a full network of neurons spread all throughout our bodies. Then in a matter of a couple days, all those neurons became concentrated on one end. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It happened over millions of years. It would just be silly to think that, you know, something like that could happen in a short period of time. Perfectly logical that the impossible becomes possible if you give enough time. Scientists have likened our brainless, spineless, leftist ancestors to something that exists today, a tunicate, also known as, and you'll see why they probably prefer to be called tunicate, the sea squirt. These don't have a spine, they don't have a brain, 
and they're basically what preceded the next stage of evolution, an eel-like creature, a lamprey. Now these tunicates, in adulthood, look more like a stagnant, sponge-like blob, which I can totally identify with, but as young'uns, they are more like a tadpole with a head-like region and a tail. So, a group of scientists have isolated some genes that are in the tail, or I prefer butt, of the sea squirt, and the same genes in the head of the lamprey. Obviously, this is a product of evolution, the neurons moving from the squirt butt to the lamprey head. And the rest is billions of years of history, and here we are, with butt neurons firmly planted in our heads. Okay, so... Fine. Science is all about coming up with a hypothesis, testing that hypothesis, proving it wrong, modifying the hypothesis, lather, rinse, repeat. What slaps me upside the butthead neurons is the way that the author writes this article as absolute fact, while filling it with nothing but assumptions, most of which are realistically illogical. So let's see what he has to say. He starts with the fact, quote, in the early days of complex, multicellular life on Earth, animals started out without any spines or brains. They only had a network of neurons spread throughout their body. Over the course of millions of years, however, that system somehow became concentrated on one end. But how? So, do you notice the absolute certainty that he says this is definitely how it started? But we have no proof of that. It's all based on wild assumptions, based on an unproven and unprovable theory of evolution. But we move on. Quote, Tunicates are like an evolutionary prototype for vertebrates, explains zoologist Ute Rothbiker from the University of Innsbruck in Austria. Our common ancestor was probably very similar to a tunicate larva. Ah, it was probably, probably very uh, similar. Huh. So this is nothing but an assumption. And this sea squirt is the best jelly blob we have to fit our theory. Okay, got it. Now they quickly cover the squirt butt to lamprey head uh, neuron thing that they discovered, and then they go on to say, quote, The evolutionary jump from tunicate life to lamprey life was a big one, but the HMX gene seems to have made it across the divide. Okay. So this is where most science textbooks will snow the reader, in an area that would take a PhD to attempt to explain the ridiculousness of the unprovable theory, either by observation or archaeological finds, they simply say, ooh, and right here a big thing happened, but let's not quibble with details. So, the evolutionary jump was a big one. Yeah, I bet it was. So big, in fact, that it, uh, it never happened. That's just an assumption, because evolutionary theory requires that we get from point A to point B or else the theory falls apart. So with the end conclusion in mind, the justification is crafted. And then the uh, gene seems to have made it across the divide. I mean, but, but did it though? Are we sure? Or is all we know is that the same family of genes is present in multiple organisms and creatures? Does that mean it was an evolutionary thing? Or a common design, a common originally perfect design that was used multiple places? For many reasons, most likely, one of which is the perfection of it. Why do something completely different? But the author has an answer to my query. Quote, 
Despite impacting nerves in different parts of the body, the similar function of HMX genes in lampreys and tunicates suggests they have a common evolutionary origin and might have played a role in the centralization of the nervous system. We'll see. It suggests a common evolutionary origin, and it might have played a role. Unfortunately, the vast majority of the dozens of people, maybe, that might read this article, they won't see those words. They'll see and believe that this had to be an evolutionary thing because of common traits. See, in my neighborhood, I live between two houses that are the same design as mine. One is virtually identical, except that I've got a wider garage with two doors. And the third house has a single door, but has an extra room over the garage that mine doesn't have. So looking at the arrangement of the houses on the street with mine in the middle, it's quite clear that mine is the missing link. On one side of my house, there's an obviously inferior three-bedroom, single-doored garage version. And then on the other side is the vastly superior fourth-bedroom version. But apparently it picked up a recessive gene for the single-door garage. No. See, common structures, common design, can very simply mean a common designer. But evolutionary theory, counter to the scientific method, discounts entirely the idea of a higher being, a designer, as that's simply a fairy tale, unlike butt neurons migrating to the head neurons over a huge leap of millions of years. I mean, that's, you know, that's totally plausible. The article quotes another totally science-type guy who says, quote, HMX has been shown to be a central gene that has been conserved across evolution, says zoologist Alessandro Panati, also from the University of Innsbruck. Notice how sure he is? It has been shown that it has been conserved across evolution. Well, he goes on. It has retained its original function and structure and was probably found in this form in the common ancestor of vertebrates and tunicates. Oh, probably. So we don't know what we were, but we were probably like a tunicate, and then we probably evolved into a lamprey-like thing, and this gene was probably in the original blob, and and in the lamprey-like ancestor, and probably carried over through the magic uh, power of evolution and, uh, and time. Very, very big chunks of time. The author sums up this article and really puts a nice bow on the theory, or I guess the fact, or whatever, of evolution. Quote, the findings suggest vertebrate brains might have once been recycled from the apparatus of their ancestors millions of years ago. And now, here we are. And how do you argue with that? I mean, the evidence is all around. It's been carefully laid out for you. And, and what? Are you going to dispute the fact? Let me, the fact that there you are and here I are and thus here we are. And that's exactly what the author said would happen. So, uh, so there you go. I mean, this is literally manipulation. The way the article is written is common, not just for evolution, but for just about everything these days. The wording is carefully chosen. The tone is carefully set. The message is thoroughly thought through. What do we want the reader to walk away with? That's what they're thinking. This is the same kind of manipulation that we're seeing on current formats like Twitter, only it's much more obvious on Twitter because we have fact checkers that swoop in to make sure you're not compromising the approved message. 
When I did a lot more procedure writing for my job years ago, I had to write up some ISO 9000 auditable procedures. When these documents were audited, the auditor didn't audit the auditable, okay, I'll stop that. It didn't audit the procedures based on if they were correct, if they made sense, if they were the best practices in industry. They simply wanted to know, are you doing what you say you're doing? Put simply, were we following our own procedures? It didn't take me long to learn how to write absolutely airtight, ironclad, uncompromising procedures with caveats, backdoors, and ways out of just about everything. It was a game. If you wrote that someone must do something, they better be doing it. But if you wrote that someone should be doing something, but if they can't, well, then you were covered. That's what we see in this article. They're writing from a standpoint of absolute certitude, and I only say it that way because I like the word certitude, that evolution is verifiably real, with the caveat of, but we can't really verify it, so this is probably what happened. Again, this is a game. There's an agenda, a message, and that message must be conveyed above all else. But they don't want to be called out for making unprovable claims, so they throw in words like suggests and probably and might have been. That's their back door out of the article. But the desired message is likely conveyed to nearly all of the readers because we've all been conditioned to think of millions and billions of years as a given. Even those of us that are staunch young earth creationists can read about a latest find that's 500 million years old and gloss over the alleged age. This is where we need to be very careful and very discerning. You may not know this, but Proverbs in the Bible has a couple things stashed in there about wisdom. Yeah, yeah, it's true, believe it or not. Proverbs 18.26 says, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. And then Proverbs 14.5-8 says, A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness breathes out lies. A scoffer seeks wisdom in vain, but knowledge is easy for a man of understanding. Leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. The wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way, but the folly of fools is deceiving. Now, I'm not implying that every evolutionist is a liar. Some absolutely are. They know what they're saying is wrong, but they have to say it. They can't allow any other possible explanation for this world. But I am saying that all or nearly all are scoffers, seeking wisdom in vain. I mean, as Romans tells us, God and his power is clearly seen if we just look. God has revealed himself to us through his creation. But these scientists, otherwise very smart people, are vainly seeking wisdom outside of God because they absolutely cannot have there be a God. Now, we Christians need to be discerning. And I'll say this, being a young earth creationist is not a requirement for salvation. But if salvation is repent and believe, and believe is a belief in Jesus, and Jesus, from his words, affirmed the creation and the flood account, at least in part. How far can we stretch belief in Jesus, but believe that he didn't know or misspoke or wasn't as knowledgeable about science or whatever excuse is used to try to justify a belief in evolution? Personally, rather than trying to figure out how to get the Bible up to speed with what the world says, maybe we allow the Bible to speak for itself and trust that the inspired word of God is correct because it's both inspired and the word of God. Have you ever missed the forest for the trees? Have you ever been so focused on a certain something that you missed an even bigger point? A much 
bigger picture. What if you were looking at the trees and you had someone in your ear constantly telling you that what is obviously a forest is absolutely not a forest? Actually telling you that what you see with your eyes, what you know in your mind, what you feel in your gut is not that. It's something completely different. This is literally 1984 level stuff. The book, not the year. I think one of the biggest revelations of my let's say, moderately aged life to this point, has come in just the last couple years where I've watched with mine own two eyes that most people are apparently able to be convinced that the forest is not a forest simply by repetitive messaging, the power of suggestion, peer pressure, fear, shaming, and left over or left out of that majority, in other words, those of us that aren't in the aforementioned group, are a few of us that require the rat face cage in order to uh, understand that what we see is absolutely not what we see. The problem with being heavy on the logical end of the spectrum is that people like me, and, and possibly like you if you're listening to this, are not highly suggestible. We're not so much interested in the messaging as we are in the facts. Well, I literally have no other way to describe this next article without this kind of explanation. That forest is definitely not a forest. This is just, it's just simply amazing. From the Atlantic.com headline, A culture that kills its children has no future. Okay, look, I absolutely agree with the headline. I agree from both a practical standpoint and a philosophical one. The author couldn't be more right. But she's absolutely been told that the forest isn't the forest. So she'll ignore that huge, woody, leafy, branchy part of nothingness that's in plain sight, and I think the forest will probably come into focus for you as we go on. As at the time I'm recording this, we're only a few days removed from the tragedy in Uvalde, Texas, an unfathomable act of evil carried out by a deranged individual. Now I say deranged before any of the facts come out because he couldn't have been anything other than that. I don't care about clinical tests, psychological evaluations, analyses of writings and postings, political affiliations, or the mom who said her son wasn't violent. The reality is because of some sort of derangement or psychosis, he chose to violently, brutally murder 21 people at latest count, nearly all of them young children. Now, I know the debate turns to the gun. I reject that. That's ludicrous. The young man did the killing, not the tool. I will not go into the gun or gun control debate here. Just know that I am a staunch supporter of the Second Amendment. And if you think this individual would have been stopped by additional laws and regulations stacked on top of existing laws and regulations, you're a fool. Sorry. I say this because... As every newspaper, tabloid, social media post, influencer, opinion writer, talking head, politician, as well as a large number of celebrities, organizations, and corporations are once again choosing to chime in with their opinion because strike while the iron's hot. And that's where this article finds its genesis. The author, of course, decries the massive number of school shootings this year alone, as well as the mass shootings, 
referencing an NPR article, so you know it's fair and balanced, which then references the Gun Violence Archive. Now, I've mentioned the Gun Violence Archive before. As a repository of information, it's just fine. It's a good resource, which is why I have saved that link as a reference. Unfortunately, it was created for and it is used by the lazy reporters that don't care about facts. Rather, they only care about numbers to ramp up the outrage they count on to get their clicks and likes. If you take the time to dig into these school shootings and mass shootings, you'll find that although the numbers are correct, the realities of what they're trying to pass off as truth are vastly different. I won't be going into that here lest we be here for the next few hours. So the author tries to capture her summary of her headline. Remember, a culture that kills its children has no future. By stating, quote, The nature of the problem, as best I can tell, is that American life isn't about what is good, but is rather about nothing at all, which is at least broadly inoffensive and inclusive of most tastes and creeds, or about violence itself. Okay, if anyone can help me with the interpretation, I, I, I just don't speak pretentious verbal excretions. I'm sorry. If I boil it down, though, I believe what she's saying is that from her worldview, the American life isn't about good. It's about either apathy or violence. Okay, well, I mean, I'm looking around at what America does at the general population, and I'd say that she's a very bitter woman with, without a clear perspective. When you look at her about info, she apparently holds a Master's of Philosophy in Christian Theology from Cambridge, but has worked her career in leftist rags, which means she likely got a tainted education and has had a tainted upbringing. Although from a theological worldview, I'd agree that none are righteous, read that as none are good, all humanity, when held up against the standards of God, are in fact hopelessly depraved, wicked, evil, wretched. This, incidentally, is why we need Jesus, why his sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection are so important, as he is the only possible way to be accepted by God as a child. By Jesus taking the weight and filth of our sins and paying our penalty on the cross, and by his placing the cloak of his righteousness around us, we can then be rescued from our wretchedness. This, however, is not the point that the author is attempting to make. She continues with her very dystopian worldview, quote, Violence begets injury, begets death, and any culture debased to vacillating between violent struggle and idle nihilism is shuddering toward its end as a culture of death, and a culture of death is like a prophecy or a sickness. It bespeaks itself in worsening phases. Right now we find ourselves foreclosing upon our own shared future, both recklessly and deliberately, and perhaps gradually beginning to behave as if there is no future for us at all. Soon, I sometimes worry, we may find ourselves faced with a darkening present, no faith in our future, and a doomed tendency to chase violence with violence. <laughs> I mean, she seems like she'd be a hoot at parties, let me just tell you. Maybe I should have told you to lock up any sharp objects before I started this. I mean, what a dark, depressive worldview she seems to be trapped in at this point in her life. And after this, she delves into her point, quote, School shootings are only a subcategory of mass shootings, which are themselves only a subcategory of gun crime. A country in which those indicators aren't necessarily signs of terminal decline is conceivable, 
But these aren't the growing pains of a society making difficult advances toward an orderly peace. These are the morbid symptoms of a society coming undone, and they arise largely from policy choices made by interested parties with material motives. (laughs) Ah, once again we come down to, it's the gun's fault. Those darn Republicans and their lord and master, the NRA, they just want people and especially kids to die. That's the point of every leftist. They, they can't sit on their hands or shut their mouths for a few hours before they rashly tap out or speak out lazy, brainless, irresponsible, agenda-driven bias nonsense. She then dives back into the deepest depths of depression, quote, but perhaps the most troubling symptom of our cultural rot is the sense, detectable already in some people, that there simply is no future for us at all. This sentiment takes many forms, whether individual or national. Some people are taking their own lives in despair or exhaustion, a phenomenon reflected in spiking suicide rates. Some say there's going to be a national divorce, a coward's term for a second civil war. And some say there ought to be such a war, and it's difficult to distinguish the two. Either way, if you take them at their word, there is no future for the United States of America. Some say the planet is dying and we're already living on borrowed time. Those people have something like an endpoint in mind. She decries the comments made by Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, who said that he'd, quote, much rather have law-abiding citizens armed and trained so that they can respond when something like this happens because it's not going to be the last time. Now, she translates that for us, quote, that is to say, it's going to go on indefinitely. It's not an end, exactly, but life inside a permanent postscript to one's own history. Here's America after there was no more hope. Now let me read her closing two paragraphs verbatim. Hold on to something. Quote, We are already living through this. It is hard to bear. All around us things that ought to matter shrink in proportion to things that ought not to. A sense of real agency in politics or government feels limited, distant. Lives that used to seem perfectly accessible to your average young person seem impossible now, while darkly fantastical lives, like those of the mass shooters whose profiles are now too many and too common to differentiate, with their weird paramilitary bravado and meme-inflected manifestos, are growing more familiar to us. I fear they'll become more familiar still. When we say in despair that, These men are byproducts of a society we've created. How could we possibly stop them? We could be referring to almost anyone in the great chain of diffuse responsibility for our outrageous, inexcusable gun violence epidemic. The lobbyists who argued for these guns to be sold like sporting equipment. The politicians who were too happy to oblige them. The shooters themselves. Moral decline of this kind produces strange and grotesque effects as it works its way, acid-like, through a society. Resignation takes the form of anger, mistrust, hypervigilance, depression, withdrawal. Nihilism arrives not as society fading quietly to dust, but as fruit flush with lurid color, ripening until it bursts. It is the fruit of a culture of death. Okay, everyone take a breath. Uh, What do we do with this? 
Well, first of all, this author is not alone. There are a large number of people in this country and around the world that like to chime in that feel this exact way. And although I take nothing away from the tragedy in Uvalde, when looking at the number of guns and gun owners in this country, the population of this country, the number of children in this country, the number of schools in this country, this as well as Sandy Hook in Newtown, as well as Columbine, this is a blip on the radar of history. Now, how do I know? Because we remember the names Columbine and Sandy Hook. They are so shocking and stick in our minds because of the simple fact that they are so, so rare. If this was slaughter of epidemic proportions, it would be treated the way shootings in Chicago are treated. Commonplace. Expected. Ignored. Yes, these incidents are tragic in the moment, tragic for the rest of the lives of those close to those that were killed, a tragic black mark on the family of the deranged murderer, a dark point in the history of the town. But for this author, in the matter of a week or two, she'll move on. She'll continue her life, as she's not affected by this in the least. And although most of us would vehemently argue the contrary, we're the same. Within a few weeks or months, this will fade into the past, and one day we'll be reminded by someone on our favorite cable station that a year ago today, a tragic shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, and we'll look at each other and say, was that seriously a year ago? Wow. The depths of despair that this author purports to feel might be real. Who am I to say? And if so, I just can't help but think that she needs to get some help. I mean, that's first. And second, her theology degree was garbage, as she knows nothing of the Bible. That said, as tragic as it is, the total child death count for the three shootings I've mentioned is 51. 51 children were murdered in these tragedies, and although her headline is correct, she is focused on the single tree of deaths of a large number of children at one time, the branch of murdered in school, and the twig of by gun. Let's look at a few other trees in the forest, shall we? As of May 27th, 2022, 30 children, 18 or under, have been shot and killed in Chicago thus far this year. Out of the victims, 28 are black, 2 are Hispanic. That's 1.5 times the number that were killed in Uvalde, and on pace to be about 15% higher in 2022 than the three school shootings I mentioned combined. Now, do these people not matter, these children, because they're one at a time, or because they're in Chicago, or because they're mostly black? Why isn't she talking about this? But that's also by gun. How many kids are murdered through abuse or maltreatment in the U.S.? In 2020, from ages 0 to 18, we had 1,480 children killed through abuse. 46% of those were under a year old. This number is 29 times higher in 2020 alone than the three mass shootings I've mentioned combined. I don't see her decrying that. And let's jump to the largest chunk that makes up the forest, shall we? The number of legal abortions in 2019 was 630,000. That is 12,353 times the number of kids killed in those three mass murders combined. In fact, since Columbine in 1999, there have been over 17 million legal abortions in the United States. 
17 million. Let that number sink in. That's 5% of our current national population. That number is 333,333 times the number killed in those three schools. In fact, looking at mass shooting deaths from 1999 to today, there have been 1,015. Abortions have accounted for about 16,750 times that number of deaths in the last 23 years. And yet that number of deaths by mass shooting, 1,015 in 23 years, is still only 68% of the number of children that died in 2020 from only abuse alone. Think about that for a minute. Where are we focused? Are we focused on the right thing? And if not, why the focus on that one thing from especially our politicians that have the world's best data at the tip of their fingers? If I can find this, how could they not have their team of interns find this? if they wanted to. So I agree with the author. A culture that kills its children has no future. But she's focused on the emotion of the incident involving a gun that happened right in front of her face, rather than the accepted gun violence in accepted cities, the overall scope of gun violence, the scope of child abuse, the scope of legalized murder of unborn babies. They say that sex sells. Well, so does dramatic emotionalism. The reality is that from the entrance of sin into this world, hatred, violence, delusion, psychosis, and all sorts of mental issues, and murder were and are naturally resulting byproducts. This will never change, not until God makes everything back right again. Attorney General Paxton, unfortunately, is correct. This will happen again. The deterrent is not to remove the 400 million guns from the hands of law-abiding people so as to allow the criminals to have free reign. I mean... <laughs> Why do most of these mass shootings occur in gun-free zones, right? The solution is to allow people to protect themselves. How far would this psychotic murderer have penetrated into the school in Uvalde if the office admins had been trained and armed? If there was an armed security officer there? If the teachers were armed? If the janitors and maintenance personnel were armed? How about if the few parents that were likely in the building at the time were armed? I'd wager that this would have never even been attempted because of this. Because even in his delusional state, he would have known, can't do anything in there, I'll die before I get 10 feet in. We've also removed God from schools and public spaces. We've shoved him back behind the doors of the church where he belongs. We've removed the Ten Commandments from school walls. We've removed prayer. We demonize a teacher that prays, schools that allow religious organizations, nativity scenes during Christmas. I'm sorry, I mean winter holiday. To fill the void, we've shoved in the religion of atheism with their prophet Darwin and their god of time and random chance. We call it science. It's no more science than I'm six foot four and full of muscles, or that I came from the land down under. The author of this article had one other thing that I thought was right. She said, quote, here's America after there was no more hope. She said that in response to Ken Paxton's comments of it's not going to be the last time, but I'd say that we are in a postscript America where there is no more hope by our own design, by our own demand even. Why did suicide rates spike along with the pandemic? Because for those already struggling, we systematically removed the last vestiges of hope for them that was found in friends and community. And since faith was already previously removed, there was a vacuum of hopelessness. So what's the point of going on, right? 
We've told kids that they're nothing but advanced chimps, that are nothing but advanced scurrying mammals, that are nothing but advanced reptiles, then fish, then amoebas, then goo, that happen to luckily get struck by the right lightning at the right time. We've shown our children that until they're born, they're nothing. They're expendable, disposable. We murder over half a million children every year and don't bat an eye because we've been told it's useless clumps of cells. Do we seriously believe that messaging doesn't translate to children, to adults that think, well, I'm a clump of cells too. Everyone is just a clump of cells. So what does it matter if I abort some of them? A society can't give the message that everyone knows in their heart of hearts is nonsense and then just expect people to flip a switch from biohazard waste to intrinsically valuable human because they've traveled eight inches down the birth canal. And we definitely have no ground to stand on to tell someone is valuable if all we all are is just a lucky accident of random chance. In fact, the postmodern philosophy of my truth is truth is again a natural byproduct of evolutionary teaching as we could all evolve differently. So if I believe someone should die, who's to say I'm wrong? Maybe I'm more evolved. We can't expect moral, ethical behavior without a foundation for morals, ethics, and accepted behavior. But that's exactly what we're trying to do. Now, the author is correct that we're in a hopeless society. And I believe I've mentioned this before, but here we go again. In 1 Corinthians 13, the famous or infamous love chapter of the Bible, which has so much more to say and means so much more than just a break where Paul thought, hey, I should give the people something to read at weddings. Paul wraps up his thought, or at least this is where the decision was made to end the chapter, with verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now the accepted view of this verse is that these are all mostly equally important, but without love all is for naught. My personal view of this verse is that it's actually stating a progression. If the greatest of these is love, then that's our goal, to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, minds, souls, and being, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. In a sin-cursed world, would that mean mass murders and abuse would stop? No, not entirely, but would it help? Uh, well, definitely. But working backwards in our progression to have love, to be able to love anyone, we must have hope. If we are devoid of hope, we are by definition hopeless. We all have experienced periods of hopelessness. We know the darkness, the depression that accompanies hopelessness. Now extend those periods from days to weeks to months to years. Extend that to everything you're being told and taught screams pointless or meaningless or hopeless. Working backwards, we can have hope in our parents and they'll fail us. Celebrities, they'll fail. Politics, fail. Boyfriend, girlfriend, any friend, spouse, fail. Hope in ourselves, fail. Everything in this world that we could ever imagine deriving the smallest modicum of hope in will fail us because we're placing our faith in things never designed to have faith placed in or on. In order to have hope, we must have faith in something that is unchanging, that is unmovable, unshakable, unwavering. Our faith must be placed in what we know to be true, no matter what happens. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Why can we sing that and believe it? 
Because Christ, our solid rock, is something we can place our faith in and on, and knowing that he will never change, that he'll never abandon his children, that he'll never fail us, we can derive our hope from him. And once we have hope, once we see that no tunnel is without a light at the end, that no valley is endless, that there is a path that will lead us up and out eventually, we can then love. No matter what happens around us, we can love others. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest, and and I'd say the pinnacle of these, is love. I've said before that I can't imagine going through this life without knowing that what I've placed my faith on is real, is true, and is worthy. I can't imagine not having hope, as my hope is not derived from externals. And although I'm probably terrible at showing it, I can't imagine not being able to love, to feel joy, to see people in a way the unsaved world just simply can't. Knowing the end of the book, our country and our world, yes, has no future, at least not in the current form. Killing our children is but one sign that our culture has chosen sides. But for those of us that are saved, we can feel and display love because we have hope, true hope, the type of hope that only exists because we have a mighty God and a perfect Savior to place our faith in. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. God bless.